So we are back in 1 Corinthians today. We took two weeks off uh, for Palm Sunday and Easter. And so I feel like I need to catch everybody up uh, on what the deal is and what we're doing here. So 1 Corinthians, we're using a tagline of a messy church on a big mission. And what happened was that Paul, the apostle, went to Corinth and he preached the gospel there for a year and a half. And the Lord spoke to him and gave him supernatural revelation. He spoke verbally to Paul and said, hey, you keep preaching here because I have many people in this city. So we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that people were born again. They came to saving faith in Christ. They were gathered in a church. And Paul moved on after a year and a half. Now, the letter that we have before us today is probably about four or five years later, three to five years later. And what we find uh, shouldn't surprise us. This church that, that the Lord had spoken so clearly about now has serious theological errors, uh, serious moral compromise that hasn't been dealt with, serious disunity, serious problems in their worship, in their corporate worship. It's a big mess. It is. And Paul is plunging in to address those things. And one of the things that is important to understand about the letter of 1 Corinthians is that there is communication going on in the background that's not available to us. It says in our text in 1 Corinthians 5 that Paul had written to the Corinthians. And then he responds by saying, now about the issues that you wrote to me about. In addition, there's been a verbal report from Chloe. Chloe's a member of the church in Corinth to Paul that was verbal about disunity and whatnot. So when we come to our text today, all that, all that is in play. And the issue that we've been taking up just before Palm Sunday and Easter, they had written him and said, what shall we do about food that's been sacrificed to idols? Now, that's a foreign concept to most of us. We went over this last time. There were lots and lots of little G gods in Corinth, you know, Poseidon and Sisyphus and all these other gods. And you could go to the temple there in Corinth and offer a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice to get a blessing. I guess if you were going out to sea on a sailing ship, you would go to the temple of Poseidon. It was, you know, sort of a lot of superstition and false religion that was involved in this. And in addition to that, in some of the temples, after they sacrificed your sacrifice, some of it would go to the priest, some of it would go to the little G God, and then through the side door, they would serve some of it in basically like a restaurant, like Olive Garden is what I've said. For if you were in Corinth, you, this just the place to go out and eat, you know, O'Hara's or whatever you want to say about that. It was just a place to go eat. Now, I believe, and I can't say for sure because it's not in our letter, that Paul had said to them in his writing, you may not go and eat inside the temple precinct, inside the building, this food sacrifice to idols. And there, it looks to me like from the letter, and you can decide on your own if you agree with me, in, in last uh, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, that sermon, Paul started off talking about food sacrifice to idols. And today, what he's going to come to is the same argument about what do you do about food sacrifice to idols, but what he's really doing is uh, establishing his apostolic authority. So he really sort of shifts gears here 
because the, the people apparently had bucked against him. They had said, who are you, Paul? Who are you to tell me I can't go to Olive Garden? You're not really an apostle like these other apostles that we see out there. And so that's the context of, of this chapter and how it fits into the issue of food sacrifice to idols. You, you just have to understand that because this seems like a really abrupt change from what he was talking about in the prior chapter, but it really does fit. Okay, so let's read now 1 Corinthians 9. And if you have to stand up and walk around in the back, I see some of you falling asleep from time to time. I mean, let's just be honest. I don't, I don't want to call your names, but we're going to read 27 verses. And if you feel like you're nodding off and maybe your neighbor can help you, you're welcome to walk around in the back back there and, and look at the text that way. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 9 is on page 11 in your worship guide. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in, preach, in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. 
Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. How are we going to approach this long text? And uh, I, I would just say that you can preach a bunch of different sermons from this. Uh, one, ser- one sermon that you might just take note of is that it's okay to pay your pastor. <laughs> okay, good. All right, or other vocational gospel workers. And, you know, another sermon might be about, you know, self-control and th- all these kinds of things. But really, the, the, the heart of this is about Paul ordering his life according to the gospel. And what do I mean by the gospel? The gospel is really simple. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, and on the third day he was raised to life. And everyone who believes in him can be forgiven and reconciled to God. That's the gospel. It's very simple. And Paul's ordering his life according to the propagation of the gospel. And so we want to ask the question today, what is ordering your life and mine? If you say that you're a follower of Christ, something is ordering your life. Some, some desire, some goal, something is causing you to spend money in certain places and not others. It's causing you to use your time and energy in certain places and not others. There's something that's ordering your life. And what we're going to find at the end of this whole argument about food sacrifice to idols is that Paul is going to say to us, you follow me as I follow Christ. So what we're, the challenge of this text today is this, is that, that we, you and I, might order our lives in accord with the gospel and in the joy of its blessings. In accord with the gospel and the joy of its blessings. And we want to look at that by apostolic example and apostolic mandate. We're going to see here that Paul establishes his authority, apostolic authority. And then he, is, he establishes his apostolic concern for the spread of the gospel or the propagation of the gospel. And then he asserts his intentionality about following through on that. So authority concern and intentionality. Let's begin thinking about ordering our lives by looking at Paul's claim to apostolic authority. He says here, these rhetorical questions are very biting. They have a point. They have an assumed answer. Am I not free? Am I beholden to any of you people? Am I not an apostle? And here we find a criteria for apostolicity. apostolicity. And you, you have a movement out there called the New Apostolic Reformation. Well, to be in the office of apostle, you had to be an eyewitness of Jesus. So by definition, this office has ceased. Later on, he says, I did the work of an apostle, signs and wonders and miracles. But we won't go to that. That's in 2 Corinthians. But he's saying, I've seen Jesus. I didn't make up this commission. I didn't receive this from anybody else. I'm an apostle. 
If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you're the seal of my apostleship. Do you see what he's, what he's saying to them? You're even gathered together with any concerns about being a church through my ministry, through my preaching. And so then he gets to the issue, and this is where, you know, I think you have to reach the, the conclusion that people were questioning his apostolic authority. He says, this is my defense, which is the word apologius, where we get apologetics, to those who had examined me. And as we said in, in chapter four, this examination is not like, hey, Paul, how you doing? That kind of thing. This is a judicial examination. The root word in Greek has uh, a judgment as a context. So the NIV translates it, I think, fairly. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. So Paul, is, he's coming out pretty big now against the arrogant people who are saying, we're not going to listen to you, Paul, because we don't really think you're a real apostle like the other people. So then what does he do? We have to figure out how does... So now he spills a whole bunch of ink about the fact that he has the right to material support. How does that fit in? Well, it's not explicitly stated, and we have to think about it. And I would suggest there, there are two options here. One might be that the arrogant and wealthy people in Corinth had decided not to extend support to Paul because he wasn't really an apostle. And when he says, I didn't make use of my rights, it means that he didn't demand that they do so, that he just sort of went with the flow. But I think the more likely scenario is that there were wealthy people who extended to Paul and the other speakers and apostles that came through a patronage, support, money, material support. And Paul said, I don't want your support because it will make me beholden to certain groups of people. And I think that's, that's really probably what's behind this, and we, we don't really know for sure. And just as, as kind of to give you a little bit of insight to that, when we were raising support to go overseas a bunch of years ago, every missionary would like for three churches to support them for like $20,000 a year, right? And then you don't have to run around everywhere when you're home. And a lot of churches take that as a good mission support policy or whatnot. But when we were thinking about these things, people came alongside us and said, hey, you know, church A is going to give you this big chunk of support, but that comes with expectations about your availability, your, your available ability for short-term missions pro uh, projects, all kinds of things that, you know, it really is a gift, but it's a gift with implied social relational strings to it. And so if that was what was happening with Paul, he was saying, I, I'm not going to be beholden to the, to the wealthy folks in Corinth. Okay, so then what does he do? He goes on this long thing. Basically, the argument is still, I am an apostle. And, and the force of the argument is, I have the right to everything that you're giving to these other people who are supposed to be super apostles. And he, he goes general, he, as Paul does, he goes general and he goes big. Soldiers don't serve at their own expense. Um, oxen don't plow while being muzzled and treading out the grain. Farmers don't farm and not eat any of the crops. And priests don't serve in the temple without eating some of the meat. Yes, absolutely, vocational ministers of the gospel have support. And more particularly, I as an apostle have the right to this support. So could it be more clear when you think about this, this isn't a sermon about pay, paying your pastor or your evangelist or whoever. This is a sermon about apostolic authority. Now, 
as we think about applying this, Paul's asserting Jesus-given, God-given apostolic authority to arbitrate the issue of food sacrifice to idols. That's what he's doing. And we as Western Americans, and I, I want to include everybody in this. Sometimes we lay this at the feet of the 20-some-year-olds or something like this. Oh, you guys are resistant to authority. But all you old folks were in the 60s. You had flowers stuck in your hair and, you know, you were give it to the man and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's like 100 years worth of, of rebellion against authority. And so, you know, who, who's going to tell me as an American what I'm supposed to do? It's in our bones, it's deep down in there. And the thing I want to suggest to you is that there's no neutrality about this, all right? Something's going to order your life with authority. And so if we scrub apostolic and biblical authority out of the way, if we're ashamed of it, if we walk away from it, if we don't like it, something's going to step into that place, something secular, something personal, emotive, how you feel about things, something is going to direct and order your life. And this is my question many times. So it, when, people, when people have, hey, you're a rigid, sort of Bible-believing, exclusivistic person because you say this about men, women, sexuality, anything like that, uh, you're wrong, you're, 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 you're narrow, you're evil, you're hateful, whatever. You, you've got hate speech, all that stuff. You just have to back up for a second and go, oh, that's very interesting. I'm being criticized for having an authoritative moral position. You're taking an extremely authoritative moral position to tell me I'm wrong. Where did, where, where did you get that authority? How did you derive it? My whole point in having that conversation is not to stir the base on social issues. My whole point is to say something is going to filter in our lives to order our days. And probably our greatest threat here in this room is personal peace and affluence. That's, that's my opinion. Just leave me alone. Let me make it through life comfortably and get my retirement and go on through. So, when we look at this, what we find is that the Apostle Paul is exerting this authority. And we just want to establish this for those of you who haven't thought about it very much. Paul says in Ephesians 2.20 that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. You may not separate apostles, New Testament prophets, revelation, and the giving of New Testament canon which is a fruit of the Old Testament, really becomes the whole Bible. You can't separate that from faith in Christ. They all come together as a package. And it claims absolute authority over our lives. And even Peter, in 2 Peter, says that some people distort Paul's writings as they do the other scriptures. The canonicity of the apostolic message not just from direct apostles, but from Luke and Mark or Matthew or whoever else. It was all in that apostolic foundation. It comes to us as self-authenticating authority. It doesn't rely on the church's validation. Of course, the church has to validate it, but it's self-authenticating. And so we, we come to this then as Americans, 
And this is directly applicable to us, I think, because I want to get you back to Corinth now. What's happening in Corinth? I believe that Paul has already told them, you may not go eat at the restaurants inside the temple. Now, he's going to say that explicitly a little bit later on. But, but from the context, I think he has already said that. And the people are saying, no, we're not going to listen to you. Now, that could cost a Corinthian if they subscribe to this, right? We talked about this last time. You have the guild of bootmakers, and the bootmakers are going out to dinner. Uh, my son is an electrician, and he goes to eat with other business people. And they hobnob and talk, and they share business stuff. They share uh, what do you call them? Consults? That's a, that's a medical term. You know what I mean? They refer each other for their own businesses and whatnot. And so that's, that's the way this works. So if you're in Corinth and you're wealthy, you can see the handwriting on the wall. This is going to cost me. Paul's stand against idolatry is going to cost me. And we have exactly the same thing in our culture. That with gentleness and love and all the qualifications that you want to say, when I refuse to go along with gender revolution or the role of men and women or, or whatever it is that, that Paul speaks about that seems angular to us, it can cost you. And the call is the same to them as it is to us. So will we come under apostolic authority? And I think what that means at a heart level for you and me is do I approach text of the New Testament that I don't like saying, how can I explain this away? How can I make this palatable to everybody? How can I, how can I worm my way through here and look okay to the outside world? We, those, are just, those are challenges that we have about these things. Now, we want to say this with some humility the church has been wrong about a lot of things. <laughs> We've misinterpreted a lot of things. And in a couple of chapters, we're going to get to head coverings for ladies and, you know, all that. There, there's all kinds of complications to that. But what I'm talking about, first of all, is what's the heart impulse? Do I see that my faith in Christ and repentance for my sins brings me to the New Testament and the rest of the scriptures with humility that says, first, let me see about complying with the obvious meaning of this text. I could be wrong, but this is the apostolic authority that, that Paul's asserting. I just, I kind of want to ask you, you can't talk out loud, but there's a little bit of a dialogue here. I, I just want to make sure that you, you know, I'm not just going off here like a crazy fundamentalist who's trying to do inerrancy or something like that. This is a necessary consequence of this text. This is exactly what was going on in Corinth. And we have to hear it. And, and the Holy Spirit has to, to give us heart to take it in. So that's the first thing is apostolic authority. The second thing that I want to talk about is Paul's concern for the gospel. And we'll be able to go a little more quickly on this. What Paul says is that he establishes, hey, I'm an apostle, like it or not. I'm especially an apostle to you. And I deserve to be paid. But now he's going to go on to help them understand why he refused. So you see again, if the argument was we offered Paul patronage and he refused it. None of the other apostles refused it. Apollos didn't refuse it. Others didn't refuse it. It makes us suspicious, Paul, conveniently for us, that you're not really an apostle. So now what he's doing, he's opening up to them his motivation. He's opening up to them 
what ordered his life and ordered his decision. And what we find is the reason he refused patronage or the reason he didn't demand his right for patronage is seen in the middle of verse 12. He says in verse 12, halfway through, we have not made use of this right. By right and design, we have this, but we have not made use of this right. Rather, we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. The thing that's ordering my decision, the thing that's ordering my life is that I don't want anything in my life, behavior, doctrine, anywhere else that will put an obstacle in the way of people coming into the joy of knowing the risen Christ. That's the ordering of my life. And and he goes on then, I I think that if you, you look on page 12 in your worship guide, in verses 19 through 22, why does he go on about this, I've become all things to all men? Now we don't know for sure, But a plausible explanation is they said to Paul, not only are you not a real apostle, but you're a hypocrite. We saw you when you were with the Jews, you didn't eat the food sacrificed idols. And when you were with the Gentiles, you did. And so now he's going to open up to them again, his heart and his mind about the whole thing has the same motivating quality He goes, yeah, to the Jews, I became like a Jew. And to those Gentiles and those without the law, I became like a Gentile. I've become all things to all men that in every way possible, I might win some to Christ. I'm an agent of the gospel through me. And then this is very critical as we come to apply this. He says, verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them, that I may have quinine or fellowship with them in its blessings. And this is where we got our, our thesis statement from. To order our lives around the propagation of the gospel and the joy of its blessings. And to have, have in heart that I, I'm going to share with people this blessing of knowing Christ. So Paul gave up his rights to pay. He gave up his right for a long time to be understood by people. He was seen as hypocritical. He was giving up all these things, now opening up to them what what it was all about for the sake of the gospel. And that's what we're saying. Paul's concern for the propagation of the gospel really ordered his life. Now, what does that look like uh, to you and to me? Well, Again, we're pretty big on personal rights and personal freedom. Uh, that's really down, down deep in our bones. And I, there's a devotional writer. I won't tell you his name. I can, I can tell you in secret later if you want to. <laughs> his name's Francois Fanlon. He's a Catholic guy. He knew Christ for sure. And he lived in the 1600s. But Francois Fanlon said um, somebody was writing him about spiritual disciplines, you know, fasting and whatever else, laying out in the snow and stuff. And how that might benefit them in knowing Christ. And Francois Fanlon responded with great wisdom to this person. And he said, if you will pay attention to the thousand ways in the normal course of your life that you have to die to yourself, to die to your rights, 
and to live for Christ, you will find your life full of all the disciplines you need simply by listening to the Holy Spirit speaking to you through the Scriptures. And so we just come to this text, and what does it mean for us to lay down our rights for the sake of the gospel? Well, I was reading this week um, a story about Helen Rosevere. Helen Rosevere was a missionary in Zaire, uh, which is now the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And she was in the 1960s at a time that they had lots of communist revolutions and stuff. Um, She's a physician and was out there in the middle of nowhere Uh, badly abused. I won't tell you that story. Really suffered a lot for Christ. But there's a particular instance in which um, there was a family that was with World Evangelism Crusade, which is where where she worked. They were 90 miles away out in the bush from Nebabongo, from the hospital where Helen Rosevere was working. And um, Helen Rosevere was supposed to go out and be with this young family because the wife was pregnant and they wanted her to be there for that delivery. And I hadn't heard this word in a long time. It, uh, she's from England. They call it the period of her confinement. Uh, that's, that's an old one, right? So when she was about to deliver. And I just can't tell you that, that 90 miles in rural Africa is like 3,000 miles. It's like a zillion miles. 90 miles is a long, long way on roads that aren't really roads and whatnot. It could take you uh, two hours to drive 10, 12 miles in a lot of places in Africa, and I'm sure that this was like that. Well, uh, Helen Rosevere got a severe case of malaria. So if you don't know about malaria, uh, it parasites, they're parasites that attack your blood cells, and your blood cells rupture and burst open. And if you get enough of them burst open, you won't have enough oxygen carrying capacity to survive. If you have falciparum malaria, you can die within 24 hours, particularly if you're naive, if it's the first time you had it. If you have a lot of red blood cells that break open, uh, your liver can't process all the remnants of those blood cells and you end up with jaundice, you end up yellow, and that's what's called black water fever. Um, You know, you you have urine that looks like black water because you are passing hemoglobin and you get jaundice. And this is what Helen Rosevere had a severe case of malaria and she was, she was badly jaundiced. And so you have to know that, that um, when you have that uh, and you lose, let's say your normal hemoglobin is 12 and you lose down to six or seven acutely, it's very difficult to take 10 steps. You just don't have the oxygen carrying capacity to go on that thing. So her supervisor at the mission station at the hospital sent a note, a, a very carefully written note out to the young family in the bush 90 miles by an African messenger by bicycle. And uh, they uh, came back three days later. The the note said she's not going to be able to make it for a while. And they wrote back very indignantly. um, And there was a quote in what I read about this that you have had a trivial illness and you're putting us at risk. So um, you think about that now. So Helen Rosier has this choice. What am I going to do? And so she says, okay, I think in in two days I'll be able to go. I'm going to go. And her supervisor knew her really well and pulled her aside just before she was going to go. And and he said, listen, I know this is hard for you. I know that you're misunderstood. Um, I know that, that this wounds you. You have a choice right now. You can give up your rights. This is what we're coming back to. You can give up your rights to 
a safe recovery from your own illness. You can give up your rights to dropping hints and innuendos about how much you've suffered to get there. You can give up your right to, to poke at this family about a trivial illness. And for the glory of Christ, for your own personal knowledge of Christ, your sense of blessing in walking with him and for the good of these other people, just go and serve. So you, you think about that, how many times a day do you have the opportunity not to defend yourself, not to establish your rights, to look to serve other people for the sake of propagating the gospel? It might be to your children, it might be to your spouse, it might be to your neighbor. And this is what this is calling us to, an ordering of our lives for the sake of the gospel. Now, if you're like me, you hear this, and you go, what in the world am I supposed to do about this? And I would just ask you, if you have a job, you probably have a place to interact with people who don't believe yet. Um, if you're in sports or you're a student, that's probably true. But for many of us, we have gotten ourselves into a believing ghetto, right? We're all walled off in there. And so I just want to ask with humility, if you're in four or five Bible studies a week that are only populated by other believers, how does that fit with ordering your life in this way? And I, I'll be honest with you, I don't have the answers to these questions. Where am I supposed to go to hang out with people who don't believe yet? Where am I supposed to go to have all the difficult decisions that Paul had? Think about it, this wasn't easy for Paul, right? First of all, he doesn't even want to eat pork. He was raised Jewish and he's hanging out with Gentiles. And now he's got these things that were sacrificed to idols. Everybody's looking at him. These are all stressful things, right? How do I, how do I behave in accord with the gospel here? And I think for many of us, we just want to flee any of that kind of tension, what do I do when people tell me their, their niece is, is thinking about having a different gender or they're same-sex attracted or, or that? Whatever the case may be, let, let's just come back and be insular. This, this text is calling us to an outward posture, and I don't have all the answers, but I know that that's what this text is calling us to. And one of the things that you want to do, rather than just going away feeling guilty with your tail between your legs or anything like that, is to look at verse 23, and he says, I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. You see that there's an echo here of John Piper and Christian hedonism. That my joy can be bound up with me knowing and having fellowship with the risen Christ and wanting other people to come into the joy of that and then sharing that joy together and becoming worshipers of God. Mission exists because worship doesn't. And I would say mission exists because joy doesn't. The, the fruit of the Spirit would come to those other people. So just to, to uh, reproduce Jack Miller, who's sort of standing over my shoulder, a mentor, how can I commend to others things that I'm not delighting in myself. So our first opportunity, our first call, is to delight in the gospel and see it as a blessing. Oh, Christ has died for me. He's been raised for me. My sins really are forgiven, past, present, and future. 
I really am counted righteous. I really am a son or daughter of God. All things will be well for me in time because my Father is good. He looks at me with affection. Why would I not want anybody else to come in to the joy of that kind of gospel understanding? So it really begins in some ways and ends with preaching to ourselves and others at the same time. So Paul is ordering his life out of a concern for the gospel. The last thing that I would say, so we've, said, we've talked about his authority, his concern for the propagation of the gospel. And then the, the third thing is intentionality. And this is where a lot of tough sermons come from about self-control. And we're going to take a little bit of a different spin on that. Verse 24, he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? And here's the imperative in this whole chapter, the command in this whole chapter is to the Corinthians, is second person plural. Paul's been giving himself as an example the whole time. Now he turns to them and he says, run the race so that you may get the prize. Run the race so that you may get the prize. Now, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. If I'm walking with Christ, the prize is mine because Christ has won the prize, right? But that doesn't keep me from running with intentionality. The wreath that he talks about, the perishable crown for the runner and the imperishable crown for the believer, it's not a gift based on your merit that you came in first or that you had the, the fastest time. It's won by Christ and given to you as in fellowship with him, you run intentionally. And so this, this last part, I think, is about intentionality. And he says, I'm not just running around in circles. You guys, what are you guys talking about? Am I really an apostle? And what am I doing with Jews and Gentiles? You think I'm just out here boxing like somebody beating the air? No, I have a plan. I, I'm intentional about living my life according to the gospel. And he's, he's telling them this. And he's, he's insisting on it. He's saying, follow me as I follow Christ. I'm running the race. You run after me. And run in the way to get the prize. Now, when I was, when I was thinking about this, um, it, it reminded me of the Barkley Marathons. I don't know if I've commended this to you guys or not. I don't commend many movies or videos or whatnot. I think this is a one or a one and a half hour documentary you can probably find it out there on YouTube. It's called the Barclay Marathons, Marathon, the race that eats its runners. Okay, so what it is, is this guy in Tennessee, I think it's at Frozen Head State Park. He used to be uh, sort of a distance runner, ultra marathoner when he was uh, younger. But now he's this real mountain guy that I think is really smart, but gives you the all shucks thing. So he's just standing around in a flannel shirt and uh, he, he goes up in the mountains in Tennessee and he puts little pieces of uh, novels, books of novels out at various places. He changes the route each time. And you have to run this with only a compass. You don't get to carry your map with you. And you have to establish by pulling a page out of the book that you met each of those spots. It's 100 miles horizontally. And people say it's probably 120 or 130 when you count elevation going up and down. And you have to do the whole thing in 60 hours. So just to let you know, since 1986, he's, he only lets 35 people in a year. 
uh, and he's really iconoclastic. Uh, he starts the, the Barclay Marathon by lighting a camel cigarette and smoking it. <laughs> yeah, so this, the whole thing is just really, really kind of strange. But only 17 people have finished the Barclay in under 60 hours since 1986. And if you look at the documentary, you find something, and we're getting back to intentionality. It's not just a good story. Uh, there's a guy on there in 2012, roughly, whose name was Brett Mon. And Brett Mon had a PhD in physics from Caltech Berkeley. And when you watch this guy run, what you see is that people were trying really hard. One, one uh, loop of this is, is 20 miles five times. You have to run counterclockwise one time and then clockwise one time, and you have to do it at night. It's, it's all very disoriented. So near the end of the thing, people haven't slept for three or four days. They're hallucinating, and they're wandering around in circles. People get lost. They have to go out and find them because they, they just can't make it back to the finish line. But this guy, Brett Mon, he was an animal. Uh, you'd see him stop at his car. He said, got to change my socks. I already planned out. This is my time to get dry socks. Uh, he's eating snack bars and drinking liquids. And he says, you know, I need 900 more calories to make it through the night. You see, it's the physics guy, right? This is what I need to be able to get through there. I need this much liquid on my back. He was extremely, extremely intentional. And I think he probably wasn't the best athlete there. But in, in 2012 or 11, he broke the record for the Barclays by three hours. He finished that race with other people wandering around in psychosis. <laughs> and I'm attributing it to, this is my illustration that you got to go with. I'm attributing it to the fact that he was intentional about how he was going to run the race. And that's really, I think, the point of this. It's not coming in first or second. It's not putting on a show. It is walking with Christ with intentionality. And so I, I think, you know, you've got to be really careful about these illustrations and stuff. Because every, everybody wants to be skinny, right? Everybody wants to be buff. Everybody's always on a diet. I'm always on a diet. And that's not really the point here, right? This is, Paul, Paul's using a metaphor about running a race with intentionality to get you and I to think about how do I order my life intentionally for the propagation of the gospel? What needs to be in, what needs to be out. And so isn't this a joyful challenge that comes to us today? And I, I just want to stop and summarize and say, let's all take some time to think about what orders our lives. And let's say, are we living under apostolic authority? Are, are we willing to let Paul say, follow me as I follow Christ? Do we see his concern for the propagation of the gospel? And do we have in ourselves any fruit of the Spirit, emotional joy in life that would make us want to go, that would compel us to go with the gospel? That concern for propagation of the gospel that people might share in its blessings? And then let me be ruthless. Let me be ruthless in intentionality. Now, I forgot to say this earlier. I'm summarizing, but I think I better say this. You know, there's a discontinuity between Paul and many of us in this room, right? There is. He's an apostle. He's single. He has a special commission from Christ. So we're not, we're not laying on you being the next apostle Paul. 
but we are laying on you in joyful fellowship with Christ, apostolic authority, concern for the propagation of the gospel in whatever way is appropriate for your life, stage, place, and intentionality about carrying that out. Let's pray together. Father, we ask you that you would meet with us even now around this text, Lord, and that you would um, pour your spirit out upon our church and upon us and that we would have uh, a joyous, uh, happy embracing of the things that are in this text uh, by the gospel. Lord, we, we want to ask you even today that any that don't have life in Christ, that you would give them life. And we want to ask you to send us with joy to our neighbors and work associates. Uh, Lord, bear fruit. Uh, we believe there's a harvest here in Lexington as well as around the world. Send us here and send us to the ends of the earth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.